This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 181, Difficulty. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in this week. Easy is better than hard, all things being equal. But all things aren't always equal. In fact, the more desirable the skill, object, or accomplishment in question, the harder the quest seems to be. And that's a good thing. This week we'll discuss why life has to be so hard in general, why I've never finished a William Faulkner book and have no intention of doing so, how the seemingly impossible can be rendered entirely reasonable, and how an order of operations can build either a car or a home in heaven. We'll start with what I've been preaching. 1 Peter chapter 4, starting verse number 12, reads as follows. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We're going to focus mainly on the idea of difficulty in verse number 18 and what it might mean in this context, what it doesn't mean. For instance, I don't think for a second that this means here that Christians are going to scrape and claw and somehow if they work hard enough, they're going to just kind of sneak under the bar and get into heaven just by the hair of their chinny chin chin. That is not in keeping with the tone of the gospel. That is not in keeping with the idea of being saved by grace. I think what he's saying is in the larger picture, not just the picture of First Peter, but the picture of the Bible in general is life is hard. It's difficult. That's why he starts in verse number 12 by talking about this fiery ordeal not being some strange thing. We struggle in this life, and we're supposed to struggle. Not because God is out to get us, because he's setting a series of traps for us or any such thing as that, but because this world is by its nature a proving ground. Our life here is temporary, it has a beginning, and it has an end. And in between those two things, we are busy, consciously or unconsciously, showing God who we are. And yes, it includes persecution. We're not happy about that necessarily, but we are blessed and hopefully we see ourselves as blessed. That's the word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. So persecuted they the prophets which were before you, goes on to say in verse number 12. This has always been the case. The test here is of endurance. Are we going to be willing to persevere, to push through? Sometimes it's an obvious thing, like people picking on us for being Christians. Maybe it's our own private wrestlings with morality. But whatever it happens to be, we find strength to endure. It's difficult. It's hard. But by faith, we find a way to make it happen. I like the way he sums up the thought there in verse number 19. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God, 
And that phrase there is a little puzzling. Perhaps if you don't understand the overall context, it's the will of God that I suffer. Yes, it is. Because by suffering, you prove yourself to be his kind of person, or you prove yourself not to be, as the case may be, his kind of person. And you realize that, and you work harder. This proving ground, whether we excel or fail, is an opportunity for us to grow, to develop, to become different kind of people. That's the will of God. He's transforming us from the inside out. Those who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. We show up every day and do the will of God. We do what is right. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it pays off in the short term. Sometimes it doesn't. But if you will make a habit in your life of giving yourself over to Jesus, of doing what is right all the time, you'll be showing the world and you will be showing your creator what you're really made of. You're not in this life with Jesus because it's easy. Frankly, it's not easy. But you know what? Life isn't easy in general. If you're going to have a tough time of it, if you're going to struggle, if you're going to suffer, why not suffer for a good cause? Why not suffer in a purposeful, meaningful way? Why not suffer because you're trying to make something outstanding out of yourself in the true knowledge that God is going to empower you to do exactly that? You can and you will succeed in your walk with Christ. You can be saved. God has already done his part. You make sure you show up and do yours. This is what I've been reading. The Sound of the Fury is a dramatic presentation of the decline of the once aristocratic Compson family of Yaknapatalfa County in northern Mississippi. I know that for one reason and one reason only. Because Cliff Notes is now online. Many of you, especially if you have actually survived reading this book, know that the first section of this book is written by someone who was mentally challenged. That was not a slap at William Faulkner there, by the way. One of his characters is mentally challenged. Maybe I should put it that way. And the first section is in his voice. And as a result, it is very disjointed. It's convoluted. I don't want to say it doesn't make any sense, but to all accounts, it is extremely difficult. I found myself with a choice to make. Is this something that I actually wanted to do? And what would the consequences be if I chose not to do it? Now that my children are no longer in school and I'm not going to be a bad example to them necessarily, I can go ahead and admit what happened. I didn't read the book. I listened very well. In class, I read other books and do very well, and I wound up getting an A in the class anyway. It's not a path that I recommend. All you youngsters do as I say, not as I do. But whether it's reading a convoluted novel or whether it's just life in general, there's a certain degree of difficulty that's going to be attached to everything. And whether we are doing it consciously or not, we are making a determination on an ongoing basis whether that degree of difficulty is worth the effort. Is it worth it for me, for instance, to save a relationship when it seems like I'm the only one working at it? 1 Corinthians chapter 7 deals with a situation, a marriage situation, where one party is determined to make the marriage work and one party is determined to not make it work. 
Starting in verse number 12, Paul starts giving instructions regarding husbands and wives or whether it's appropriate for them to divorce simply because they do not share a faith. And Paul's answer is no. You should not divorce for that reason. But he adds in verse 15, yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Now, when he says that the brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, what he's saying there is, it's not your obligation to make a marriage work when it's not going to work. You don't beat your head against the wall trying to make an impossible situation work. God calls us to peace. You find a way to serve Jesus in your single state rather than in your married state. Maybe that's not preferred, but that's the world you're living in. And so you find a way to make it work. If that's a difficult line for us to draw, how about saving a soul? In Matthew 7, verse 6, Jesus tells us, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under your feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Does that mean that we quit on evangelism in some situations? I wouldn't put it that way exactly. But we are also not supposed to be continually bombarding someone with the truth when they have shown that they are unworthy of the truth. There are other ways to be an example. There are other people to teach. When the sower is sowing his seed in Matthew chapter 13, sometimes the seed falls in good places. Sometimes it falls in not so good places. We understand that's the way it works. We accept that. We embrace that. We do the best we can. But there's a far cry from sowing randomly and sowing in a parking lot. That's just a waste of resources. That's a waste of time. We owe the gospel better service than that. Well, how about living sinlessly? We're told that we are to strive for perfection, loving our enemies like God loves our enemies at the end of Matthew chapter 5. That's not just a degree of difficulty. That is the ultimate in impossibility. Well, surely if there's any situation where we should quit, that's it. No, it's not. Because when we fail, and let's spoil the ending here, we're going to fail. When we fail, that failure still draws us closer to Jesus. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 reads, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's our objective, our impossible objective. And if anyone sins, who could just as easily say when anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. This is why we don't lose heart in what would seem to be an impossible situation an impossible degree of difficulty. It's not our job to accomplish the task perfectly. Jesus has already accomplished his task perfectly. And because of that, because we're living under grace, we can have confidence that our best efforts, however flawed they may be, are going to be good enough. He sees us walking in the light as he is in the light, and he forgives us of our sins. I wish reading William Faulkner was as easy as that. This is what I've been hearing. You are listening to a recording of a recording of a recording of a flute player named Katie Alfin playing Rimsky-Korsakov's classic Fight of the Bumblebee. Yet another example of this weird tendency of mine to seek out unusual content that has nothing to do with my life, but watching people really excel in those places. YouTube's an amazing thing, whether it's watching people turn a dead tree stump into a work of art or watching somebody build a house out of 
mud and sticks, or whether it's listening to somebody learn what is oftentimes described as one of the most difficult pieces of music in the world. Katie mentions, and I'm going to link to her video, by the way, in the show notes, that she had never played Flight of the Bumblebee before, but she knew, of course, how the song goes, and she was confident that she could play it. And so she determined in this video to learn the entire piece in one day. And what you hear is the end result. I find that kind of astonishing, of course, because I don't play the flute. I doubt I'd be able to make much of a noise even on a flute. But someone who knows what they're doing can turn the seemingly impossible into something that's possible. And I'd like to use Katie as an example of how we can go about using this principle with regard to our Bible study. Surely the first key is to know the instrument that we're trying to play. If you want to be adept at the Bible, you need to know the Bible. You need to read the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes to his young protege here, recalling the way that he was brought up by his mother and his grandmother. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Now, if you don't know the Bible very well and you're not a child, to a certain degree this principle has passed you by, and I realize that. I'm not trying to rub salt in your wounds. But surely starting 20 years late is better than starting 21 years late. Starting 40 years late is better than starting 41 years late. If we can start now to acquire good Bible study habits, Bible reading habits, maybe five years from now, 20 years from now, we'll see some remarkable progress. I won't lie to you. It's a whole lot easier if you start young. That's the way it was with my parents. I had certain basic Bible facts drilled into my memory. I memorized the books of the Bible and their proper order. A lot of verses in them, including, by the way, verses from this context. By immersing ourselves into this environment, we learn the language. And we learn basic fundamental principles, fundamental strategies for applying this to our lives. And that's really what Bible study is all about, as he goes on to say in the same context. It's not just about knowing facts, being able to recite the judges or the 12 sons of Jacob or the 10 plagues or any such thing as that. Although those are fine and they look really good when you're six years old and reciting them in front of the congregation. The main thing is learning how to live your life according to the Bible. And that's what Paul goes on to write in verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is not just learning for the sake of learning. This is equipping us for work. We're being trained in how to behave as Christians, how to behave as preachers, elders, wives, husbands, parents. The Bible is adequate for every spiritual work, the text says there. And so, therefore, when we learn these fundamentals, we learn what it means to be a Christian, how to become a Christian in the first place, how to live as a Christian, how to avoid sin what might seem to be relatively straightforward things to people who have been reading their Bibles. Now, if you haven't been reading your Bibles, it's a different story. But these very fundamental things are going to equip us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. 
And then having started the journey in the right place, having grown in these basic principles that are supposed to be equipping us for every good work, then we go out there and we work. And this is the hard part because it doesn't come easily. We are forcing ourselves into a set of rules and regulations that pushes against everything we're being taught in the world. Many of the things that come naturally to us, indulging our vices, indulging the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eye and the pride of life, which we do by instinct. Jesus teaches us a different way, a better way. And we devote ourselves to that. Earlier in the same context, chapter 2 and verse 15 of 2 Timothy, one of my very first memory verses from the old King James, study to show yourself approved of God. That word study there is not really about reading your Bible, although reading the Bible is implied. A better translation is found in the New American Standard Bible. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. Be diligent. Work at it. Be studious, if you will, in your efforts to apply God's word accurately. You don't need me to tell you how difficult it's going to be from time to time. Peter tells us by inspiration that it's difficult. In chapter 3 of 2 Peter, starting in verse 14, he writes, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, that is, these eternal, final things, be diligent, again, working hard, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all of his letters in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. See, Paul's writing sometimes your difficulty says. You don't have to misunderstand him. If you give yourself to his things and you reject the example of these ones who are trying to distort his teachings, you'll be fine, he says. You, therefore, beloved, verse 17, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is what we do. This is how we are diligent in our pursuit of good things, in our pursuit of holy things, God's things. We know what his word is. We pursue his word. We commit ourselves to following his word. And then we hone ourselves. We recruit help from people like Paul and Timothy and people in our own lives so that we can be found in the end blameless, not perfect, but people who can be counted on, people who are reliable. That's who we can be. God will give us the strength to be those things if we'll work at it. It's not going to come easy, but wouldn't it be great if we could be the kind of person who performs in Jesus with what seems to be complete effortlessness, flowing through the most difficult passages of life without a care in the world, at least seemingly that, making it look easy. That's not just a possibility. That's a potential reality if we give ourselves to the work. This is what I've been playing. Kanban is the Japanese word for sign. In microeconomics, it is referring to an inventory control system, basically a series of signs. When you're running low in this, a sign pops up, hey, you know what? We need to get more of this. It is intended to facilitate the flow of manufacturing so that everything moves smoothly, without interruption, things get made on time and under budget. You want to be effective. You want to be efficient. 
That means having the tools in hand when you need to use the tools. As with a lot of things, though, that seem simple, that seem straightforward, in practice, it's considerably more complicated than that. I discovered this playing Kanban, the board game, which is about automobile manufacturing, presumably a Japanese factory. In this game, you are constructing cars. But to get your factory working properly, you have to respect the order of operations. You get a design, you get the parts, you get the assembly taken care of, you test the car, then you sell the car. You really can't deviate very much at all from that plan. If you start getting things out of order, you get backups, you get wasted effort, wasted time, wasted turns, you lose the game. It's exactly the kind of game that I am really, really bad at. I don't know what it is about my brain. I have difficulty streamlining the idea of order of operations. I wind up spending one turn getting object A that I need for process B. And then in the second turn, I get object C, which is also needed for process B. And then in the third turn, I do process B finally. And by this time, Tracy's running away with the game. Fortunately, our process of building our faith is a little bit more simple than that. Or maybe this is just a game I understand a little bit better than Kanban. I don't know. But it stands to reason, to me at least, that if I'm going to start my walk with Christ, I have to start in the right place. I have to build with the right tools. I have to have the right plan in mind. First things have to come first. Take Ephesians chapter 3, for example. In Ephesians 3, verse 19 through 22, we read, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built up together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit." Paul paints a beautiful picture in Ephesians chapter 3 of this eternal plan, this mystery that has been revealed in Jesus, how Jew and Gentile alike can come into this blessed, holy relationship, not only with God and with Jesus, but with one another. The Spirit guides us into all the truth so that we, as the body of Christ, can accomplish spiritual things individually and collectively, and ultimately glorify Him in this temple that we're talking about here. But it has to start with the foundation. It has to start with building where God tells us to build. Other foundation can no man lay, except that which is laid, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is Christ Jesus. Same basic principle. Jesus is at the core of everything that we do. His morality, his doctrine, his example, this is where we start. Now, we might want to skip ahead a little bit. We want to live where God lives. And it says here we're building a temple, which is going to be a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Well, that sounds good. Well, I'll build myself a temple then. No, you won't. Not unless you're building on the foundation. It has to be done his way. The apostles and the prophets laid that foundation one time for all time, according to Jude verse 3. We can't come along 2,000 years later and say, I think it'd be better to build in this other place. We have this other vision of Jesus. We have this other vision of truth. No, you have to build on the foundation. Similar thoughts in 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Here again, we find ourselves finishing the process in this wonderful place. The eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what we want. But how do we get there? We get there by diligent effort. It is our job as Christians to be continually monitoring our progress or lack thereof. The divine power that God gives us through the gospel empowers us to grow in our faith, grow in our application. And having done that, then entrance into the kingdom is supplied to us. We don't want to skip any steps here. We start where God tells us to start. We go where God tells us to go. We do what God tells us to do. And then we wind up where God wants us to be, where we want to be. We can't have any shortcuts in this, though. We can't simplify things. We can't streamline the process. We didn't invent the process. We're not judging the process. This was given to us from heaven. Our job is to accept it, to embrace it, and to apply it as best we can. At the end of this process, we will have built a magnificent thing that honors God, that honors Jesus in our lives. Not because we were so great, but because we were given a great plan. And because God helped us through this process, Jesus showed us the way through this process so we can become more like him. But it's not going to work unless we respect the process, allow him to do his things in us in his way. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.